And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Larry Hogan is a rare species in American politics, a popular Republican governor of an overwhelmingly Democratic state, Maryland, who regularly bucks Republican Party orthodoxy in the age of Trump. Maybe he comes by it naturally. His father, Larry Sr., was the first Republican on the House Judiciary Committee to announce his support for the impeachment of President Richard Nixon in 1974. I spoke with Governor Hogan recently about all of this, his battle with cancer and other stories from his new memoir, Still Standing. Here's that conversation. Governor Larry Hogan, so good to see you. Thank you. It's good to be with you. There's so much to talk about that's going on right now, both uh, in, uh, that involve both your role as a leader of the governors and as governor of Maryland. But before we get to that, you have a great story. You just wrote a book called Still Standing, and it's an apt title because you've faced a bunch of challenges uh, in your life. But first, just a little history. Your, your great-grandparents on both sides came over from Ireland, so your classic uh, immigrant uh, f- story here. Yeah, I think like so many people in America, we got that background. And, you know, I uh, all of my I say I'm 100 percent Irish. Uh, It's probably why I I drink beer and eat potatoes so often, (laughs) why I look the way I do. But, you know, I'm very proud. I'd be the last to criticize, Governor. (laughs) Yeah, I uh, but I'm very proud of my heritage. And, uh, you know, my uh, I heard a lot of stories from my my grandparents, but uh, on both sides of the family, very Irish, uh, typical Irish Catholic family. And and your folks. you folks went to school together. I had some Catholic schools in in uh, in Washington. Yeah, it was two separate. It was an all boys uh, Catholic high school. My dad went to, and kind of the sister school. My my mom went to a Catholic uh, girl school in in uh, Washington D.C. But they were high school sweethearts, and then uh, my dad went on to. Uh, so you can separate you can separate the boys and girls, but they find each other, don't they? They find each other anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. Um, and your dad was uh, uh, they worked they both worked so that he could go to college and then on to law school at, at Georgetown. Yeah, that that happened a lot back then. They didn't have any money, and uh, he he was the first in his family to to go go to college and and go through law school. But they both worked you know multiple jobs to try to be able to afford to do that, and he got a great education. I learned you know, so much from both of my parents and they had a huge impact on my life. I talk a little bit about that early life in my book. Yeah. Com- compellingly, um, your dad became an FBI agent. Why did he become an FBI agent? You know, I think he, um, this was during J. Edgar Hoover and uh, yes. he, ju- he just had a passion for the law. And uh, so he, while he was, uh, he started working at the FBI while he was in Georgetown Law School. And then graduating uh, with his degree in law, he went on to become a special agent. He tells some really interesting stories of his own about some of the cases he was involved in. But you know, he went on to have a varied career with doing a lot of other interesting things. Did he talk to you about those cases? I mean, that was an interesting time in the Bureau. It was a very turbulent time in the country, late yeah. 50s, early 60s. You know, the the whole uh, red thing and, and, then, Absolutely. and, and the civil rights uh, movement and and Hoover yes. was right in the middle of all that. Did your did your dad get touch any of that? He he did. I mean, I was very, you know, I was very young at, at the time when that was going on. So I, I at the time I wasn't hearing those stories, but later my dad would reminisce about some of his early days at the bureau and 
what it was like working for J. Edgar Hoover. Um, you know, he, he traveled around, you know, being an FBI agent and had some, some, some big cases that he worked on, but he actually wrote a book about a, a thing called the, the, the Osage Indian murders, which investigated people that were marrying into a, a tribe to get head rights and steal the land uh, from Indians, which was a big case. But he told some interesting stories that we probably could spend all day talking about. But <laughs> what was interesting to me is he left the FBI to go into public relations, which seems like a, a strange leap. Total, total shift. And I, I don't know what motivated him. I think he was a little frustrated with the FBI, although, you know, I think he was proud to be an FBI agent and uh, and enjoyed part of that. But uh, he he, he uh, studied journalism and an uh, undergraduate. And uh, yeah, he always had a hankering for uh, for writing. And uh, I think the public relations, you know, getting involved in you know publishing magazines and, and trade publications, things like that is what drew him into, into that change of careers. Yeah, well, speaking of change of careers, when you were 10 <laughs> years old, he made another and, and leaped into politics. Yeah. Uh, so what w w was politics a big thing in your in your house? Were you surprised when you heard your dad was running for Congress? Well, you know, I think he was dabbling uh, because of his public relations background. He got involved in helping in a couple of campaigns, just uh, not really in a high level, but I think helping uh, in, in the managing of a couple of local campaigns and then maybe a, uh, helping in a gubernatorial campaign in Maryland for a Republican candidate that didn't have much of a chance. But he got interested and he attended a convention and then he really was, uh, he decided to run for Congress in a district that, you know, had no ability for a Republican to win in. And uh, he, uh, he decided to take on a long-term incumbent and uh, ran once uh, and with no money and, and no real chance, uh, came very close and came back again and was elected to three terms in Congress and uh, and then gave up his uh, seat to, to run for governor. Why was he a Republican? Uh, the, you write that your family was, a you know, as many immigrant families were, was a, a strong, uh, you, they were union people, strong Democratic family. Yeah. And so. Yeah, he may have been the first uh, a Republican in the family. I know that his uh, his dad was uh, was a strong uh, Democrat and, and involved in the Printers Union, and um, I think my dad was uh, initially really in, uh, attracted to and enthralled with uh, John F. Kennedy's. Yeah, as, uh, as a lot of Irish Catholics were. <laughs> yeah, he's Irish Catholic. It was almost yeah. a prerequisite, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, but I think he, um, you know, he, he was attracted to uh, at that time the philosophy of the of the, of the Republican Party and. Um, I think it, he 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 just decided to ha have an interest in more of an interest in politics than he did before, and he ended up. You uh, you you wrote that he that part of it was having been in the FBI and a kind of uh, that that was a big law and order time in 1966 when he made that decision. Uh, that became sort of a uh, a core of the Republican uh, argument in '66 and '68. Yeah, there's no question that was uh, there's some parallels to some of the things that are going on today. But there was a, there was, a, you know, uh, the Republican Party was talking about, uh, you know, law and order. And I think uh, coming from law enforcement uh, background, maybe that was some of the some of the things that motivated him. To, Let me ask to, you about it just just as an aside, because I don't want to lose the thread of your story. Yeah. But just let's take it to. Yeah, we, we could do an hour about my dad. The president. Uh, <laughs> I have a few more questions about him. The president, uh, as you know, just sent uh, these DHS agents into 
Portland, and he's talking about sending them into other cities. He did it without the assent of the governor or local authorities, uh, and uh, it is it is consonant with the campaign he's running for president, which is that there's this lawlessness going on, and he's kind of the thin blue line between disorder and uh, uh, and uh, and stability. Um, I wonder how you, as a governor, to react to what he's doing? Well, it's, uh, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the, in the conversation. Um, from my dad's early FBI to what's <laughs> yes, happening today. I'm, I'm skipped, completely absolving whole, your dad you, of responsibility. You, you skipped my, my whole life story. Don't worry about book. it. I, I'm getting back to it, brother. It's too good to miss. <laughs> but yeah, so I talk actually uh, to draw to draw us back in and, and, and to bring it into the conversation. I talk about this uh, in my book. Um, and that is that is uh, kind of uh, parallels with what's going on uh, today in some respects. Right after I had become governor in 2015, we had uh, Freddie Gray, the, Freddie Gray, the death of Freddie Gray, and and, and some pretty uh, you know uh, bad violence and rioting going on in the streets. So. We should just remind people what the Freddie Gray case was. He he. If you want to do it, Freddie Gray uh, was, was a, a young man in the city of Baltimore who died in police custody. His death, uh, much like some of the things that are happening today, set off uh, frustration. It was this was after Ferguson? Baltimore was the next one. It was at the beginnings of the of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, in addition to some peaceful protesting, we had some real violence break out in Baltimore City and. Um, 400 in the first few hours, 400 biz, uh, businesses and homes were destroyed and burned and 127 police and firefighters were injured. It was really out of control. And I, as a governor, had to make the decision to come in to help keep Baltimore safe and send in police officers and the Maryland National Guard. Uh, but we did so in a way that we we allowed the protests to go on for a week and we just backed up the city police uh, who were beleaguered and overwhelmed. You report that you had some tense discussions with the mayor at, at that time. Yeah, it was, I, well, we can talk a little bit about that in more detail if you want. But the, the parallel today is, um, I think, I, I'll, I'll tell you both sides of that story. I don't think that you should have to have federal troops uh, or federal, whatever kind of federal agents, uh, yeah. agents are coming into these cities uh, to, uh, to take the actions that they're taking. But I also uh, believe that we can't have sort of, uh, you know, mobs uh, with violence and destruction in some of our cities that have been, in some cases, in a couple of these cities going on for several months at a time. And I would say that I actually talk about a better way to handle it uh, it was sort of a piece through strength where we had the the law enforcement able to protect property and life and limb and to keep people of the city safe and to stop the violent acts while protecting and allowing the peaceful protesters to express their very little legitimate frustrations. So uh, violence on either side is is escalating the, the situation. And, and I think I write about that. I, I have five chapters about this in the, yes. in the book about how to do it, I think, uh, the right way. And we got Credited for that, I taught. I taught a course at the National Governors Association on how to handle a crisis. And like you this. also walked the streets, which was uh, important. Uh, Very you weren't important. a distant figure. But the question here really is, from the standpoint of governors and mayors, um, you know, the the pretext for sending these folks into these these agents into uh, Portland is that. Uh, they're protecting federal buildings, but the local authorities there say they've actually inflamed the situation instead of uh, instead of helping. 
Well, I think that's that's what you need to avoid. Yeah, and that's what we tried not to do. And if you look at our response in Baltimore, not only in 2015, but this time, uh, uh, this time with uh, when with the, the protests over the death of George Floyd, uh, we, we were we responded better than most cities in America, where we had you know almost 10,000 people peacefully protesting and multiple protests, but for the most part, very nonviolent, very little destruction. Yeah. Uh, but we did have. Uh, the state police and the National Guard backing up the city police to keep. But they worked in concert, they concert with in, and not. Exactly. And and in a very reserved way that just allowed. So I know, you, I know you're, you're, you know, you're a trained professional, so you're probably not that eager to weigh, weigh in on this. But just as the as the head of the Governor's Association, um, would you have advised the White House not to send those those agents in without the cooperation and coordination with local state and local authorities? Was well, not a decision I uh, certainly w- would have made, but I also would have strongly advised those mayors and those cities and those governors to have taken more steps than they have uh, to stop some of the violence and the destruction and the burning and the looting that's been going on for several months. It seems like it's co- you know uh, coordinated with the campaign that the president's running. He's running ads suggesting that if Joe Biden becomes elected president, that you know, you, you are, your, your personal safety will be at risk. Um, I can't speak to the motivations of the, the campaign or, you know, what, what, what they're, th- they're thinking. What is. about the message of the campaign? Yeah, I, I'm not sure what the message is. The message frankly. is be, be, be afraid, <laughs> be very afraid if Biden gets Well, you know, I, well, frankly, um, I think the Democrats' uh, message. Uh, I think they're making a mistake. I don't want to get. I don't want to play pundit. But this is more your expertise. Uh, you know, you're more of a campaign guy than me. But uh, uh, I think the Democrats are making a mistake. Uh, you know, with uh, I, I've given him a, a platform to talk about. You know, this, the whole defunding the police, and I realize uh, Joe Biden is not in favor of defunding right. the police, but but this message, when you see some anarchy in some of the streets of these cities and you have a talk about we have to get to defund or, or get rid of police, it, it has opened the door for that. I'm not saying it should be the message, but... But uh, it's certainly it's it's certainly becoming an issue that they're going to both argue about from now until November. Let's return to your story. We'll get back yeah. to current times. You went to, you went to Catholic school as well, Damatha High School, a sports mecca. You must yeah. have been there right when Adrian Dantley was there, huh? I was there with Adrian Dantley, and uh, what a great what a great uh, basketball players of all time. He really was. Uh, he was leading scorer in the NBA, Rookie of the Year. You know, I was a huge. I was friends with Adrian. I just saw him not too long ago. Uh, he was a year older than me, but uh, a great, a great basketball player. I loved basketball, and uh, you know, I wasn't quite good enough to make that team because they were the best team in the country, and I think had had three NBA players on the team. And that you know, wasn't you, huh? <laughs> I wasn't one of them. <laughs> yeah. You also had the, uh, there was a, a turbulence in your life around that time your parent your your parents got divorced your father called came out you were shooting baskets and he came out and told you that your your parents were going to get divorced it was shattering to your mom she moved to florida you felt responsible uh and moved with her because you wanted to support her uh i can't think of a more unsettling thing in the life of a teenage boy than to be ripped away from his friends, to be, uh, you know, to be in that situation. What what impact did that have yeah. on you? Well, you know, I, I tell some of these stories just to, you know, to, to, to kind of just to tell you what 
what made me the way I am, I guess. Yeah. Today. But, so, so what um, effect you know, I, did that have? I, you know, I loved both my parents, and um, you know, I such you know, I admired my dad so much, and 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 quite frankly, I enjoyed hanging out with him because we did really uh, fun things together. I didn't want to leave my friends and the school that I loved, and uh, you know, be, have my life uprooted. But uh, you know, it's a tough thing. So many people go through these divorces, and it's it's hard on on kids. I was a you know young. Yeah, teenager. I was one as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I. I Really, I had a choice. Do I stay with my dad or stay with my mom? And I guess some people are put in that situation. And and uh, I made the decision that my mom just needed me more than my dad did. I even though I was a kid, I was I felt like I was there. I was her protector. That's a uh, tough position to be in. Yeah, um, but I, you know, I, I it didn't turn out to be so bad. I my my mom trying to get away from Washington and. Uh, get away from, uh, you know, just to find a new place to to start over, um, moved us to Florida. And I ended up making all new friends and and uh, going to school, staying down there and going to school at Florida State and came back to uh, the Maryland area, the Washington area uh, after college. But uh, I, you know, put together yeah, because, great- because your dad didn't <laughs> think selling uh, selling, uh, sun, <laughs> yeah, selling suntan lotion, lotion was, was a, career. a career for you. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoyed it while I while I was there, but I guess uh, he was probably right. It wasn't something I could you know do long term. Uh, first of all, your dad. I remember your dad because I was a kid. We're about the same age, and I was watching uh, the water. You look much younger. Though, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the that's it's the it's the camera is what it is. But um, the um, uh, but your dad was one of only six Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee to vote to impeach Richard Nixon. In fact, I think he's the only one who voted for all accounts yes. uh, against Nixon. He was running for governor of Maryland in a Republican primary, and yeah. he voted to impeach a Republican president. Um, that is an extraordinary thing. Well, you know, it's uh, I talk about this a little bit in my book. It had a it had a huge impact on me uh, to this day. Uh, you know, I learned so much about integrity and public service from my dad, especially that one moment in time uh, when he was on the House Judiciary Committee for that vote. He was the very first Republican to come out uh, for Nixon's impeachment, um, and. It, it had it rippled across the rest of the committee and across the country, public opinion, um, Nixon's decisions about what to do. Um, at the time, it was a, an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, and for decades, uh, it, it hurt him personally, politically. He lost that uh, primary and he would have yeah. won. He, he, he had a really good chance to be elected. And um, he, it, it, the Republicans were really angry. They saw him as a, a, a turncoat or, uh, you know, why aren't you supporting the, the president of your own party and how could you do this? Later, of course, it's it's the thing he's most remembered for. And um, and the thing, you know, his, his his the one thing in life that I think people say, wow, your, your dad had a lot of courage and he stood up and, and took this stand. But at the time he knew, he, he, he knew ahead of time this was going to, uh, he was going to lose friends in Congress. Did he tell you that? Did the, he talk to you? Oh, about yeah. It? He said... Uh, you know, this may be the end of my political career. A lot of people are going to be upset. Uh, and it was true. I mean, the people in Congress stopped talking to him. He he got, I think, we didn't have the internet back then, and you didn't have Twitter, but he got, you know, 15,000 pieces of hate mail. Uh, and and, and uh, you know, people mailed feces in the mail to his congressional office. And uh, 
uh, he he really uh, it took it took a long time. But later, of course, he t turned out to be you know Nixon. He 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 actually was a Nixon supporter. He campaigned with Nixon. He thought Nixon had done a good job on foreign policy with China. Uh, but as that FBI agent and that Georgetown trained lawyer, as he he fought to make sure it was a fair trial and that Nixon could cross-examine witnesses and present evidence because he you know he 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 did not let. It become a partisan yeah. process, but when he saw the evidence, he you know he gave yeah, a very impassioned plea that it, it the president was guilty of impeachable offenses and that no man was above the law. Yeah, no, his speech was quite a speech. He, uh, you know, I was curious when I was uh, reading this uh, whether he um, had conversations with friends in the FBI. Uh, during that period, you know that's a great question. I never, I never asked him that. He didn't really talk about it. Um, I think he, probably not because he saw his role as a juror, yeah, right, sit, sitting in judgment mm -hmm. of the president of the United States and one of the most important decisions to face the country. And he wasn't really sharing much of the information or the, you know, the evidence. So he was keeping it, you know, he, yeah. he was trying to really make wrestle with this, making sure he made the right decision. You know, um, John F. Kennedy wrote a book called Profiles in Courage, and it was all about these kinds of decisions where people made a choice between what they thought were their was their duty, and yes. and their political uh, and their political self interest. And you know, so many people say today, and you hear it all the time, I'm sure, as someone who is viewed as an apostate in the Trump world, uh, <clears throat> people saying, "Well, why don't people split with the?" president? How could they tolerate this? How could they? And the answer is, you you know, they're worried about their political careers. Right. Well, and and this was, uh, I mean, Nixon was seen as a guy that uh, kind of went after, he had his, en his enemies list. and He was very aggressive if you weren't, you know, towing the line and being on, but, you know, People not a, not a gentle, not a gentle <laughs> yeah, not a soul like yeah. Donald Trump. <laughs> he, we knew he wouldn't <laughs> exactly, but I mean, I, there, there. Look, there. I'm. I've been one of the few people that's willing to. I've, I haven't been out, you know, going after the president for no reason. Um, but when I when I believe he's doing something wrong, I've been one of the few Republicans that'll stand up and say so. But there are a yes. lot of folks that really are. They're afraid of you know being tweeted about or being attacked or or being uh, you know primaried or you know. It's well, a very and they tough, would they, they would they would say. Although you always have the threat of a primary, but they would say, well, that's great for you because you're from Maryland, which is an overwhelmingly Democratic state. So you have yeah. the leeway to speak well, your mind. They we do don't. say that. They, they do say that sometimes. <laughs> they say, I agree with what you're saying, but you can say it. I can't. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now... Back to the show. How did you feel when your father lost that primary for governor? You had experienced his loss in the first place, but you expected him to lose in '66 or whenever it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, no, I think he was he was really shocked by it because there were polls showing him winning the general election. Mm -hmm. It was a tiny turnout because uh, you know there aren't many Republicans in Maryland uh, to begin with, and not today, and there weren't certainly any back then either. Uh, and uh, it was a hand a tiny turnout, and the few people that came out were really angry with him and you know supporting uh, President Nixon. Um, and so after the election, you know, uh, it, it all kind of changed, but it, it was a little bit of a shock. I mean, nobody, nobody expected him to lose. Did it leave a, a sour taste in your mouth about politics? You know, I always had kind of a love-hate relationship with politics. I, I was fascinated to by this it. day. 
Yeah, to this day. I yeah. mean, I'm probably I'm, I'm I'm probably more frustrated and disgusted with it than I ever have been, frankly. Um, it's but I, I you know I I've enjoyed the campaign uh, aspect of it, and I I learned an awful lot. But I my dad gave me some really good advice, and he said, "Don't make it your career." So I spent most of my life as a small businessman in the private sector. But I you know I dabbled in politics because I thought it was important, and so yeah, you didn't just dabble. You ran people. you ran in 1992 yeah, yeah, yeah. against a guy a guy named Steny Hoyer. Yeah, we had a we had a fun time. Steny and I are close, you know, friends now. But we had a pretty aggressive uh, campaign. Uh, I ran a underfunded campaign in a three to one Democratic district in a in a in a big presidential year when when Bill Clinton was winning in a landslide in my district, and we we gave him a run for his money. Yeah, you won four or five counties. Yeah, uh, four out of five just counties. not the biggest one. <laughs> not, the, uh, not the one that counted. Yeah. yeah. But uh, when that was over, did you say, okay, I got that out of my system. I'm probably not going to do this again. Yeah, no, I was done. I uh, really had no interest in, uh, in running ever again. And it, uh, you know, took me, a, it took me uh, 22 years to do it again. And you, you did do it again. You had been successful in business. You emerged as a, uh, a kind of fiscal, uh, fiscal uh, uh, hawk in the state and rode that. Uh, to the governorship, um, and you and you won. Just getting back to your dad for a second. And the reason I keep asking these questions <laughs> is I am totally fascinated by fathers and sons in politics. Yeah, no, I, I work for I, I work for Rich Daly in Chicago. I work for Adlai Stevenson the uh, third, and I've I, and I've had conversations like these with Mitt Romney and others. Yeah, and um, it's such a complicated thing. Because well, no, you, you, well, you should explain it to him. I'm proud of him, you know. I, no, no, I understand, but but not that part. Every single person would say how much they admire their dads, and every single person you could point to elements of them that you you can see the the lineage um, in them. But there's also you know you um, you scaled a political height that your dad tried to scale and didn't. And well, I'll tell you an interesting story. When I, uh, you know, my dad was in his 80s when I got elected. And uh, when I, on election night, when it, we had pulled off the impossible, and no, I was not on anybody's radar screen. And we, we underfunded campaign. We, 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 we won in Maryland, which no one was expecting. It was the uh, biggest surprise upset in America in 2014. My dad was there with us, and I turned to him. He had run unsuccessfully in 1974. In 2014, I won, and I turned to him. And I said, Dad, uh, it may have taken us 40 years, but uh, we're finally going to have a Larry Hogan in the governor's mansion. Tears rolled down my dad's face. And yeah. you know, I was at that point when I realized that, you know, I'd been proud of him my whole life, but that night he was, he was pretty proud of me. Yeah. Did you, um, that must have meant a lot to you. It did. Yeah. I mean, you, we all kind of like seek the approval. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, so I, I went into business and was very successful. He spent most of his life, you know, in politics. Uh, and I was able to kind of carve out my own niche. But that politics was still, even after 20 years uh, of kind of trying to go cold turkey, uh, you know, it dragged me back in because I just got frustrated with what was going on in our state. And I decided maybe I can try to do something about it. And I, I put together a grassroots citizen organization that had just as many Democrats and independents as Republicans. It's the only way to win. And you know, we had the highest Democratic registration in America. Um, and uh, Republican candidates don't, don't win very often. <laughs> no, there's, there, there's no doubt that was defying the laws, the political laws of uh, 
of gravity. I meant to ask you uh, about one element of your biography, your early biography. When your dad rescued you from the suntan lotion business. (laughs) I would say, uh, you know, stole me away from that great job. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You got a... uh, I don't know. You look like a guy who could easily burn. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's true. Um, the, I even uh, had skin cancer issues with all that. <laughs> the, um, the, uh, you got a, a job in Congress uh, with a fellow named John Ruslo. I, I remember him well. He was about as right-wing a guy as a former <laughs> yeah. Western director of yes. the John Birch Society yes. and so on. And, you know, you hear you are sort of viewed as the quintessential moderate Republican now. Yeah. And, and I assume you were inclined that way then. It was simple as this. I graduated from college. Uh, I was looking for a job. I sent my resumes. I graduated with a degree in political science from Florida State University and uh, put resumes out all over the hill. And he was the only one that offered me a job. It was a Republican congressman. Um, I think I was uh, making $11,000 a year. Uh, and, uh, you know, it didn't, you know, it wasn't anything about my burning desire to be supportive of, of, of John Ruslow, but it was my first, you know, experience on the Hill and didn't last very long. I didn't really enjoy being a, a Hill staffer. It was, uh, I think I was there less than a year. And, uh, but it, uh, that, that, that was my experience on Capitol Hill. Were there any, were there, was there anything about the way he handled his issues that, caused you as a young man to say, geez, that's a little. I, you know, I didn't really, I was so young. I was uh-huh. a kid coming out. I was, I was, uh, my moonlighting job was helping to run my dad's uh, campaign for county executive. He was reviving his which career. Which he won. So, which he won. We won that race. <clears throat> Another kind of uh, upset. Uh, but, uh, so I wasn't paying that much attention. I was going there doing my job, responding to constituent uh you know, uh, concerns and uh, and then going and doing the fun stuff, running campaign. And you and and you your dad, uh, you, you wanted to go to work for your dad. Your dad was hesitant and uh, yeah. your dad said, OK, you can come to work for me as long as you're the <laughs> lowest paid member yeah. of the staff. Right. So, you know, I I, I wanted to really get this experience and I, I'd love being a part of being back in touch with my dad and being getting a chance to learn. And, and I, was, I really was a big part of his campaign to get him elected. And everybody on the team was like, let's go. Now we're going to go take over this county government and we're going to get all these things done. And my dad said, well, you're you're not coming because it'll be nepotism and I'll get criticized and blamed. And I'm saying, but, you know, what if I work it is, for it free? Is, it is a little obvious when <laughs> yeah, when the, right. when your name is Larry Hogan Jr. <laughs> and the guy the in charge name. is Larry Hogan right. Sr. It's hard so to I said, hide. What if, yeah, what if I just work for free? No, they'll we'll still be criticized. But a number of the other folks that were coming in the administration were like, hey, this he's we'll get over that because he's really valuable. And my dad said, and they said, we, he can't work for free and have these responsibilities. So they put me at the lowest possible level of of any uh, any county employee, and I didn't care what they were paying me. It was a great experience, and I worked hard doing multiple different jobs. You didn't get married until quite late in life, right. or later than than usual. I, I wonder when I was reading about uh, you know the your parents' breakup whether that was the the were you were you shy yeah, about I mean, the experience of it? You know? I, yeah, I mentioned that, but probably had some impact. I mean, uh, you know, I waited until after I was forty. I was you know to uh, to actually. You know, I joked that I, I didn't I didn't settle down for the first girl that came along or, or the second, you know, but <laughs> but I took my time. But I think, you know, my, my parents divorce did have a big impact on me. And I was like, I don't ever want to go through that or, or, or hurt somebody the way I saw my mom hurt. But part of it was I just really enjoyed 
uh, being single and I had lots of relationships and I was really focused on growing my business. And I never, I never realized how late it was getting. I was in my thirties and I was like, you know, Hey, who cares? And then I got over 40 and I was like, maybe I should, you know, I'm a young 40, but maybe yeah. I've got to settle so, down. So tell me, about, tell me about your wife, Yumi. Yeah, so I met this incredible uh, woman who was, a, was born in South Korea, uh, who emigrated to the country, became a you know, citizen here, and, and uh, came over uh, young and, and uh, married a Korean-American uh, here and, and, and had three daughters who she basically raised on her own as a single mom coming here to learn the language and, and do multiple jobs while raising three kids, incredibly difficult story. Uh, but I met her, she's an artist. Yes. Um, she's now an art professor. Uh, but I, I just, uh, she was, there was something really different about it. She was very special. She's beautiful on the, on the outside and the inside. And she was so different than me. I was very outgoing and, and knew a lot of people and was involved in a lot of things. And she was a quiet, uh, you know, kind of, or almost, you know, they say opposites attract and, uh, but there was something calming about her and, um, we just connected and uh, we had a little difficulty communicating at first uh, because my Korean was non-existent and her English was was uh, str struggling. Do you speak Korean now? Did you pick up some of it? So I'm, I'm really good on all the food and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know all of There's those. a theme growing up here, Gov. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, so, you know, I'll tell you a quick story. I went to the White House for the first time with President Obama with my wife for the, the governor's dinner. And I was so impressed with this. We walked through the receiving line to, to shake the president's hand with the first lady, the president take the picture. And he says, uh, which means to say, how do you say hello, you know, in, in Korean. And I was really impressed that number one, he knew that my wife was Korean. And number two, he knew how to say hello in Korean. So, uh, I, I was sitting with Valerie Jarrett. I was like, I was so impressed. It, it, you know, you know, that he, he, he knew that. And she said, well, he does his homework before yeah. he, you know, we get, well, they kind of prepare him for those things. But I, it was, but uh, yeah, I, I know a little Korean, but certainly not enough to, to communicate. But my well, wife's a, been a big part of my success. And um, I talk a lot, a lot about that in the book. You do. Especially when I went through my battle with cancer. I mean, yeah, she which I want to get to in a second. Uh, I just want to ask you this. She's a, she's, she is an immigrant. She became a citizen in 1994. You're, as you said at the outset, you know, and as most of us are, you're the descendant of immigrants. How do you interpret the president's approach to immigration and this sort of weaponization of fear of immigration in our politics? Is that a, do you, is that a personal issue to you? Well, um, I, I just recently raised this issue. I talk a little bit, uh, one story about this that yes. in, in the book that bothered a recent story where the president was really insulting to uh, Koreans. And your wife was deeply offended. <laughs> she was deeply offended. Uh, and uh, we actually sat with the vice president at the White House dinner the, the next night, and she raised it to him and said, uh, you know, hey, uh, I know your dad fought for freedom in South Korea, and they've talked about it before. And she told him how the president had insulted her the night before and how, how, how hurt she was by it. She was almost in tears. Uh, but I, yeah, I, wait a I second. You can't uh, leave the story there and not say how he, how he dealt with it. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I'm not going to speak for, for him, but I mean, I, I think, you know, we expressed the frustration and the president that night again at the white house reiterated the same kinds of comments he made the night before. And I, there's no reason for it, but look, I, um, I think you I, said it, she wanted to get up and leave, but she was too polite. She to wanted to get up and leave 
twice, <laughs> once yeah. at the Republican Governors Association and then again at the White House dinner. Uh, but uh, she, you know, we, we, we stayed out of, you know, respect for, you know, the people that we were, we were with and out of the, that we were in the you know, president, uh, this respect for the office. But, uh, you know, I don't know why he does, says the things he does or the way he talks. I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's well, really. Well, you know, uh, come on, you know why he does it. He thinks there's political well, I, I don't think it makes, it. I don't think it makes sense uh, for him politically. Um, I, you know, I, I, if he, if you do these things to help you politically, I think it's a miscalculation because I think shrinking the, the base and alienating, um, you know, groups of people is not the way to go about being successful. Here, in in my case, in Maryland, you know, we've reached out to, I won the Asian vote overwhelmingly. You know, I have a 70% approval among black voters. I, I, I do extremely well with Democrats and independents and suburban women. And if, the, if, if Republicans are gonna be successful, if the president is gonna be successful, or other Republicans, they're gonna have to find a way to not alienate each of those groups. And uh, so the doubling down on the base, yeah. um, I don't think is a good strategy. And, and, and it, it may it, it may help the president. It's going to crush a lot of down ballot folks. Did the invocation of Kung Flu sound to you like a guy who was taking it in a different direction? Yeah, it, it sure did. I thought I thought that was uh, uncalled for. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now... Back to the show. You talk about your cancer. You, you, the Freddie Gray crisis was one of the first things you confronted as governor. And then almost hard on its heels came this personal disaster. Uh, yeah. Talk about talk about that. You, you describe it vividly in the book. Talk about your battle with cancer. Yeah, it was. So I had only been governor for five months. It was 60 days after dealing with the uh, disturbance in, in Baltimore. And after my first legislative session, after having just won this big election and just put our team together, we were off to a good start uh, trying to make a difference in our state. And um, I was on our first trade mission to Asia when I first I started having some aches and pains. I was feeling a little run down. And then I, I had a, a lump pop out of my throat. And I said, I've got to check this out when I get back. So I wasn't thinking there was anything seriously wrong. And I ended up, I went, uh, three doctors walked into a room and told me I had very aggressive and advanced, uh, potentially life-threatening uh, cancer that I had 50-some tumors from my neck to my groin. Uh, some were, of you, were you alone? Was, was your wife with you at the time? I was alone in the room. Um, and uh, it, it was, uh, I just kind of swallowed hard and uh, maybe blinked my eyes. Uh, I was a little bit stunned. I wasn't really scared or, or, uh, you know, it was a little bit just shocking, but my first thought was how do I tell my, my wife and my kids, it was father's day weekend. It was Friday of father's day weekend. And, um, you know, I had to go home and tell them, and I was more worried about, you know, being positive for them than I really was about myself, frankly, sounds strange, but it was true. And it was my talked about my dad earlier. He was coming over for dinner. Uh, and I, and I had to tell my dad who took it even tougher than my wife and my daughters, you know, even, even though I was 59 at the time and my dad, you know, think thought of me of his little boy that he couldn't help, you know, keep safe. Uh, but it, it was a tough, tough battle. Um, you know, I share, I, after I shared it with my family and my staff, I went out and told the 6 million people of Maryland who had just put their trust in me, uh, to run their state. And I tried to be as transparent and open as possible. 
You went out there and did a press conference against doctor's orders, didn't you? Yeah. I, uh, so on Monday morning, I had to go in for surgery to remove a lymph node from under my arm. They put me under full anesthesia and uh, then gave me serious, I think, Percocet or Vicodin or something afterwards for pain. And uh, the doctor said, uh, you know, just take off the rest of the afternoon, get some rest. Don't make any major decisions. You know, don't drive or operate any heavy machinery. And I was like, they, the state troopers don't let me drive and I'm not operating any machinery, and, <laughs> but I am going to give a press conference this afternoon. And he said, oh, no, you, you can't possibly do a press conference. And I said, well, I'm going to go into the hospital on, you know, this Friday to start 24-hour day chemotherapy. I, I want to tell people before what's going on, before the rumors start. I want to be as open as possible. And he said, you know, they're not going to ask you questions at this press conference, are they? And I said, I'm pretty sure they're going to ask me questions. So I, I kind of went out there. It was a little bit like truth serum, I guess. I, I just felt very relaxed and <laughs> shared it with them. Me, you yeah. would love to have everybody take Percocet yeah. before they give their I mean, it would, uh, press make, for, it would make for good television. <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would. So you you went through this uh, you went through this chemo. Uh, you you were working while you were doing it, actually working while you were going yeah. through the the at the very moment you were going through uh, chemo. But you wrote that there was a time when uh, you were getting all these expressions of prayers and support from people. There was a time when it suddenly overcame you. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it was it, at first, you know, I, tr I was trying to be really strong uh, and maybe I was internalizing some of this. I mentioned when I first got the word, I was thinking about my family. Then I thought about how am I going to tell my staff and my cabinet and then how am I going to tell the rest of the people in Maryland? And then let's get a plan. What are we going to do? I'm going to get this 24 hour a day chemo. I'm going to go through this hospital. How am I going to? I was just very focused, like normal. Let's just get this done. Very businesslike. And I never really focused on the, on the fact that I might actually not survive this. Um, until, you know, one night I was taking these 24 hour uh, steroid uh, drugs along with the chemo and I couldn't sleep. And I was, I was laying in a hospital bed late at night all by myself. And I was reading these cards and letters that my staff had brought a sample of people that were little kids that were, you know, saying they were praying for me and, you know, just, just wonderful expressions of support. And uh, all of a sudden it hit me. Um, not only was I choking up a little bit about the sentiment that these people were expressing, but it hit me that if all these people are that worried, you know, maybe, maybe there's a real threat here. And, it, and I finally broke down. It was like, you know, I guess I, my, my guard was down. Maybe it was the drugs or whatever, but it, it finally hit me. And, uh, you know, and I had a, you know, I, I was, I actually, you know, started crying in the hospital bed there, but it was up until then I was like, never, you know, once got, I wasn't scared. I wasn't, you know, upset. And then it finally caught up, but, uh, then I got right back on track, you know, and, uh, stayed focused and stayed positive. I worked the whole time in the hospital and tried to keep everybody else positive. And I, I, I met so many incredible fellow patients that were going through much tougher struggles, met their families. I walked the halls of the hospital and met some of the kids in the pediatric oncology ward. And, you know, it was, it, it sounds crazy to say this, but it was a, it was actually a, an experience that I think, uh, you know, really shaped me. And yeah, I want to ask you about that in a second, but you, you took some young, after that you started uh, hosting young cancer patients, children at your, in the governor's box at Camden Yards and at other sporting events. And you write about a young man named Andrew 
uh, who uh, uh, gave you a list of, of, of what you yeah. should know about cancer. It's okay to cry. It's okay to find yeah. a hugging person. And you <laughs> kept that list on your desk. And it, what happened to Andrew? So Andrew's doing really well. Andrew Oberly. Um, he was five years old when I first met him. Um, I guess he's, he's 10 now because I just hit my five-year anniversary. But we went to, this was at like, the team formerly known as the Redskins that we don't yes. talk about. This, I, it was at a, the Washington football team. We call them the Washington Gridlock now. Yeah, the, yes. <laughs> that's a great name. The Washington <laughs> Gridlocks. I like that one. Um, and so, you know, we went down on the field and met the players and they signed autographs for the kids. And it was really wonderful. We had a, it was a group called, uh, you know, it was a, maybe we had a dozen cancer kids. We went up to the suite and this little kid, Andrew, he handed me this note. He said, Governor, my mommy told me that you're going to go through chemo and you're going to be in the hospital. And I, she helped me write this note. He had this list of, you know, all, you just mentioned a couple of them. One of them was make sure if, make sure they give you the num num cream before they give you the pokey. So <laughs> before they give you the shots, they wrote. That seems like good so advice. I, I, yeah. So that's pretty good advice. So I go to the doctor and say, hey, where's the num num cream? You guys just keep sticking me. But uh, so I, when I did my press conference that I was, uh, you know, healthy and had become cancer free, this little kid comes running up. I didn't really know he was going to be at this press conference. He ran up to the podium while I'm talking and just hugged around my legs. And I was there when he, you know, he rang the bell when he was cancer free. We, we sent notes back and forth. But he's just one of the many people yeah. that I just had this connection with. I still pick up the phone constantly and I'm calling people. Somebody will say, uh, I have this friend or I have this family member that's in the hospital. They're going through this. And, and, I, and I'll pick up the phone and call them and say, let me share my experience and what can I do to you know, help you go through it? So I know you've discussed this and you, uh, with, with Vice President Biden who, and, and your reference there to what you're doing for others is reminiscent of his relationship with people around the country because he's become yeah. someone who's, uh, who people turn to for solace when they're fighting of these things uh was this has this been uh something of a bond between you guys is that a have you developed a friendship around cancer so i he and i get along you know really well and while he was uh vice president we had a we had a good relationship and um you know i think he's you know he's got a very engaging personality and and was always very uh you know friendly uh i the la i haven't seen him since uh, elijah cummings funeral where we we, mm -hmm. we got a chance to, to to talk a little bit but yeah we we've always had a a, a very uh a friendly he's a very affable guy yeah, I know, who I, you know i know him yeah. well <laughs> yeah i know you do <laughs> you wrote your father's name in for president in 2016 could you see yourself voting for biden in the fall Look, I, I, you know, I don't want to try to dodge the issue, but I, I really, <laughs> yes, um, you do. <laughs> but I do want to dodge it. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, it, it, a lot, like a lot of people in America, um, you know, I'm, I'm, this is a tough uh, election we have coming up here in November. And, and, and uh, frankly, you know, I'm a little bit frustrated uh, with, with both parties and where we are today with our divisive politics. And, um, you know, I, regardless of what happens in November, I think, you know, both parties are going to re-examine, you know, where we're going to head in the someone future. But is going to be president, though. Someone is going to be president. If you didn't president. vote for Trump in 2016, I presume you're not going to vote for him in 2020. Well, it's not going to have much of an impact in my state. Uh, uh, you know, Hillary won by almost 30 points in, in Maryland. And, and I'd imag I imagine Biden will as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. I'm not going to plow this uh, any further <laughs> because, uh, yes, uh, you're, you're, like I said, a trained 
professional. On the cancer issue, you, you had this song that was in your earbuds all the time, a Tim McGraw song called Live Like You Were Dying, and some of the lyrics are, and I loved deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness. I'd been denying. Someday I hope you get the chance to have uh, to live life uh, like you were dying. Uh, yeah. And uh, do has it changed the way you live life? You know, and th- that song um, had a, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a country music fan to begin with, and I like uh, Tim McGraw. Uh, but right after I got that diagnosis from the doctors, you know, and I was on my way home to talk, th- figure out how am I going to, how am I going to explain this to my wife and my daughters? I put the earbuds in. I listened to that song because it's kind of a hopeful message about making the most out of every day you have. And fl- uh, you know, fast forward six months later, as I'm you know five or six months later, as I'm in the worst part of my chemo, the University of Maryland Medical Center where I was being treated has a benefit concert uh, for the for the Children's Hospital, and Tim McGraw is the headliner, and they asked me to come and and introduce Tim McGraw, and uh, yeah, so I got a chance to meet him backstage. I didn't had never met him before, and I went I, you know I said to him backstage, you know, Tim, I just want you to know how much your song inspired me. And uh, we, we got a chance to know, you know, talk and, and he said a lot of people, it's not my biggest song, but a lot of people really feel a connection. He told me about his dad, Tug McGraw, who was yeah. a baseball player. I grew up, uh, I grew up rooting for him in New York City. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So he, he, he said that every time he sings the song, uh, he, he, he thinks about his dad and, uh, you know, uh, so I went out and introduced them on the stage. He gave a great concert, and then he he came out and sang the song and dedicated it to me in front of all the people. I didn't know he was going to do that. He said, "This goes out to Governor Hogan. He's going through a that tough must battle. have been a, that must have been a- oh, I was crying. Yeah. The audience was singing, and then and then afterwards, uh, his manager. I was running out, you know, the door, uh, not really feeling bad. By the way, I was at the worst part of my chemo. I could barely stand and. Uh, head was swollen, you know, no eyebrows or eyelashes, mm-hmm. and really sick. Uh, but uh, t- they gave me a guitar from, uh, you know, that he had signed. It said, uh, to Governor Hogan, live like you're dying. And I have it hanging on the wall of my office. It's one of my cherished uh, possessions. I'm sure it is. But what does that mean to you, live like you're dying? Because we we all are, and it strikes me, yeah. and, and, and frankly, we've all been made more aware of our mortality in the last uh, four months. Life is a yeah. gift, and you don't know how long it lasts. It's, I, I think, uh, I take every day as precious. And this, the, the song, to me, it, it was so inspirational, why it was my theme song, is because it really... Um, look, I, I'm going to give the, this job I've got as governor everything I've got every single day that I'm given. Every day is a bonus as far as I'm concerned. I wasn't sure I was going to be here. It makes me realize what are the really the important things in life and what, what are the things that are not as important. And uh, you know, it, it really does make you think. If you, if you take each and every day and say, you know, you don't know if it's going to be your last and you live that way and you make the most out of it, I, I think it can, it can have a major impact on your life. Let's talk about this um, this this siege that we've been uh, that we're still going through here. Um, we've seen this resurgence of uh, of COVID, even in your own state, and you've done a good job there. There's been an uptick in the last few days in cases. Um, are is this out of control right now? It certainly appears uh, we're not we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. This is uh, I'm, I'm concerned that it's going to get worse. Uh, that um, it may get worse than it was before. 
uh, that uh, the fall, as we head into the flu season, could be uh, really serious uh, problems all across the country. Uh, you know, we've been so far luckier than many other states. We have a slight uptick in cases because we've tripled our testing recently, so the numbers go up. But our positivity rate is still declining, and you know, our, our ICUs beds are declining. And yeah. so, compared to a lot of states, we're doing okay. But um, we're watching it every single day because we're not immune. I mean, the states all around us are starting to blow up, and we've taken some very early and aggressive steps. Uh, but that doesn't mean, uh, you know, it's not it can't flare back up again. You, you've expressed frustration uh, periodically about the federal handling of the uh, the crisis. What should have been done from the beginning uh, that would have made a difference now? I, I think uh, early on, the first few months, uh, you know, while we were the president was downplaying uh, saying it wasn't uh, it wasn't a big deal that it was going to go away it was going to disappear uh, it was 15 people soon it would be not none and that uh, you know that uh, we didn't develop a national testing strategy and uh, there were people in the administration uh, some of our you know public health uh, officials and uh, folks uh, that were on top of it and raising the alarms and they were telling the governors uh, to get ready but um, it, you know the governors were sort of on their own. It was a 50 state strategy and we were scrounging around for things. That, well, in fact, the president said that it was up to the states. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, we've, we've been fighting ever since to catch up from those first few months of being behind as the virus got out of control. The White House uh, sent a proposal to the Hill for extended relief, uh, stimulus and relief, but it included cuts in, in, in funding for testing, for tracing, for the CDC, why in the world would that be? Oh, it's a terrible idea. I, I spoke out very strongly about it. We're probably gonna talk about that with all the governors today. The, the most important thing we can do to get this virus under control right now is more testing and more contact tracing so we can identify where the cases are and try to stop the spread. Um, and we need more money for testing and not less money for testing. So uh, I, I have no idea where that motivation comes from. Governor, I know you have to run. The la you've said that you want to be part of building the Republican Party in the post-Trump era. And you said earlier what you thought the Republican Party needs to do in terms of broadening its base. But the Trump base is a big part of the Republican constituency. And do you have any uh, reason to believe that whenever Trump leaves, he's actually going to go? Or is he going to lead his faction forward? And doesn't that create problems for people like you who would like to see the Republican Party take a different direction? Well, I guess time will tell. And uh, I think we'll probably figure that out sometime after this November election. But certainly uh, there's a big chunk of the Republican base that's uh, very strongly supportive of, uh, of President Trump. Uh, but I think there's also a, a large chunk of, of uh, folks in, in America that uh, that really are kind of frustrated with uh, where the Republican Party is and uh, that may be looking for a different direction. Uh, and, and we're going to have that conversation. Do you see yourself potentially as a candidate for president in 2024? Your job uh, is uh, over in 2022, the beginning of 2023. It gives you plenty of time to yeah. run. Well, it gives me plenty of time to keep doing this job till January of 2023. Uh, but yeah, I, um, I think it's too early. I want to get past this election, get past the virus, and then we'll take a close look at it. I, I really, this, this writing this book and is not about uh, actually uh, running for anything. I, I really honestly am 
not so concerned about my future in the Republican Party. I'm, I'm more concerned that, that we have a future for the Republican Party because I, I really strongly believe in the two-party system. And I think we've, uh, we've got a lot of work to do. Governor, good to be with you. The book is still standing. Governor Larry Hogan. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Hope it's the first of many conversations. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.